Last week we began a look at verses 1 through 6 under the heading, New Life of Steadfast Hope. The New Life of Steadfast Hope. And the focus in that is on the change that our hope in Christ brings and produces in our lives. When Christ calls us to salvation, when we place our faith in Him and we are converted, we are not left just to live as if we were just another citizen of this world. We are changed. Our conversion, our hope produces change in our lives. We began looking at that last week. My intention is to finish looking at that in verses 1-6 through six this week. The book of 1 Peter has been teaching us what it means for Christians to live as strangers in this present world. And yet, though we are strangers, to remain steadfast and faithful and hopeful and godly and joyful where we are. Peter has established from the very beginning some essential foundational facts about true Christians and what it is that enables us to go against the grain of this world's sinfulness, which is what we are most often called to do, and yet to remain steadfast and faithful. Peter says in chapter 1, verse 3 and 4, that true Christians have been born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. That is language of the new birth. That is language of the old way of life passing away and being brought into the new way of life, a completely new life in Christ. And then Peter says in chapter 2, verse 9, that true Christians are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim his excellencies, the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. That is language of being set apart. So born again and set apart is how Peter describes the Christian life. True Christians are the people who a people of God who have been chosen for salvation by God's sovereign grace alone, in Christ alone. And we have been set apart from the world and unto God. That means we belong to him. That means we exist for his purposes. It means that we live for his glory. It means that our identity is wrapped up in him alone. And Peter makes clear throughout this book that there is a distinctive line of demarcation between God's people and the rest of the world. And as his people, we are called, Peter says in chapter 1, verse 15, to be holy. That is to live according to our holy standing in Christ. That is the thrust of what Peter is teaching throughout 1 Peter. And it is the foundation of our steadfast hope in this world. As much emphasis as he places on being holy and on living by the right behavior in this world, he always emphasizes it in the context of you have been saved by grace alone in Christ. Now live according to your standing. 
He reminds us we are not our own, and we do not belong to this world, but we belong to God, and in Him we find our steadfast hope and eternal joy. And so at the end of chapter 3, in verses 18 through 22, Peter once again lifts our eyes to Christ. He reminds us of the foundation of this all. He rises to a glorious celebration of the gospel as the foundation of our hope. He makes a powerful statement on the triumph of Jesus Christ over sin and over death and over hell. And he has proclaimed the good news of eternal life and steadfast hope that is found in Christ. And this, as we have seen in the last several weeks, changes everything. It changes everything. And so as we look at our text for today, 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 1-6, through 6, Peter explains what that change looks like. What has changed for the Christian? How has it changed? What does it mean for us? that these things have changed. Peter answers these questions here as he begins to describe and explain the new life of steadfast hope that is produced in us by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's look at our text now. You'll follow along as I read. 1 Peter chapter 4, starting in verse 1. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking, for whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached, even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. We learned last week that there is a fundamental and distinctive difference between those who belong to Jesus Christ and those who do not. In Christ, you are not and you cannot be the same as everyone else. True, con true conversion is a life-altering experience. It changes our view of the world. It changes our understanding of what is happening in this world and why. True conversion changes our relationships with one another. It changes our conversations. It changes our interests and our ambitions and our pursuits. It changes what we think is funny and what we find entertaining. It changes our sensitivities and our convictions. It changes our identity and our character, it changes everything about us. It doesn't mean that our personalities are unlike anything that 
we were like before we came to Christ. No, we have the same personalities, and we may even have the same struggles, the same sin struggles. But the whole orientation of our life has changed if we are in Christ. As Paul says, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. He's not just an improvement on the old one. He's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. We are not what we once were. Everything has changed. And in this text before us, Peter describes that change in three basic categories. I want us to consider these three categories of change this morning. Rooted in steadfast hope. And so the first change is this. Steadfast hope changes our lifestyle in this world. We see this in verses 1 through 3. This is what we studied last week. In verses 1 through 3, Peter says this, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking, for whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God, for the time that is past suffices, for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. This is where we spent our time last week, and I would encourage you, if you haven't heard what we studied last week, to go back to the website and to listen to last week's message, and you'll see a fuller development of these. But for our purposes this morning, I want to do just a quick review to get us into the verses that we're going to look at later. Peter describes the change of lifestyle that occurs in all who follow Christ. And he calls Christians to embrace that change and to live according to it. Don't resist it. Don't go back to the old way of life. You are a new creation. Now here's how to live that way. But it is important to notice how he begins his description of this new lifestyle. He says at the very beginning, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh. That ties what he says in chapter 4 to what he has just said in chapter 3, having to do with the death of Christ in our place, the victory that he has gained over sin and death and hell, and the gift of salvation that he gives to those who believe in him. Peter points back to the finished work of Christ as the foundation for the Christian's ability to live the right way in this world. In other words, the Christian life rests on, it is built on, the finished work of Christ. Not on our own efforts in the flesh. Okay, This is not pull yourself up by your bootstraps and make yourselves worthy of God's grace. That is not what Peter is describing here. He's saying as recipients of God's grace, who have, who have received the salvation of Christ, and through his finished work alone that is sufficient for life and for godliness, here is how you live according to that grace. So what he describes here begins with a heart change that results in a change of mind and thinking that plays itself out in a change of behavior. The heart change began in the previous chapter, chapter 3, verses 18 through 22, with the embrace of the gospel of Jesus Christ as our Savior. That's where this begins. 
And then in verse 1, Peter addresses the change of mind that comes next. He calls us to turn our minds away from worldly thinking and to embrace a proper understanding of the spiritual warfare around us. That's what he does in verse 1. He speaks of Christ's suffering in the flesh, and he talks about arming ourselves with the same way of thinking and suffering in the flesh in the same way. He's calling us to remember our distinction from the world, that we are not meant to live in ease in this world and at peace with this world, but we have been distinguished from the world. And that that's going to result in a certain level of suffering for righteousness sake. And when we experience that, we ought to think about it the way Jesus Christ did. Not in a way that is self-serving, not in a way that is vengeful, not in a way that there's somehow something wrong with all of this and my faith must be wrong because it hasn't gotten me the life of ease that I think I'm entitled to in this world. There's none of that in the suffering of Christ. And if anybody could, could claim unjust suffering, it was him, right? We are called to express and to think about this the way Christ did. And so we learned last week, willingness to stand firm without giving in to the sinful pressures of this world and readiness to suffer for what we believe, for our faith, is a demonstration that we have the mind of Christ that we are devoted to his purposes and to his promises above all. And when we have this mind of Christ, we don't have to seek our own vengeance in this world. We don't have to fight the world's battles with the world's weapons. We can suffer with grace. We can endure with steadfast hope anything that we must face in this world. Because we've been given a new heart. And that new heart has produced in us a new way of thinking. And we don't see our suffering the same way that the rest of the world might see it or think about it. And then as a result, in verses 2 and 3, we see this change of behavior that Peter describes that flows from this new heart and this new mind. The time is past, Peter says, to be marked by or to be involved in the former sinful passions that define the unbelieving world. The reality of where we stand with God through Christ not only changes how we think, it changes how we act. It changes our behavior. It changes our driving purpose. It changes our passions. It changes the whole direction of our lives, the whole emphasis of the things that we do from one day to the next. This gospel change is a drastic change. It is a total transformation as I've said, we've been born again, and now we belong to God. And our purpose is to live by His will, to fulfill His will for our lives, to demonstrate His character to the world around us. And so we don't find our security. We don't find our fulfillment in the pleasures of this world, in the pursuits of this world. Yes, there are things we are allowed to enjoy, and by God's grace, go enjoy them, but that is not where your hope is. That is not where your ultimate joy is. And all those things could disappear tomorrow. And you're happy so long as you have Christ. That's the new mind. That's the new behavior in this world. 
And Peter calls us to live that way, to remember that, to live by it. Now, all of that's what we covered last week. And again, I would encourage you, if you didn't hear last week's message, go back and listen to that. You'll get a fuller development of it. But that brings us now to verse 4, where we see the second aspect of this change brought about by our steadfast hope in Christ. And that is that steadfast hope changes our expectations from this world. It changes our lifestyle in the world, and it changes our expectations from the world. You know, it's, it's so tempting and sadly so common for Christians to try to adapt the gospel message, to try to adapt the Christian life in an attempt to make it appealing to the world around us. Because we don't want to look that different. We don't want to be weird. We don't want the awkwardness, right? To show that we're not as strange as the world might think we are. As a pastor, I see this happen in churches all the time. Churches that minimize the preaching of the Word of God and maximize whatever else it is that they want to do that is, frankly, fashioned after worldly trends, right? All in an attempt to soften the blow, to blur the line between God's people and everybody else. Now, look, I'm not saying go out and be strange. I'm not saying go out and be weird. I'm not saying go out and, and, and start conflict just because you want to start conflict. I'm not saying be aggressive or be antagonistic and, and put a religious spin on it. That's not what I'm calling us to do. That's not what Peter calls us to do. But we need to understand that if we're going to be different in this world, it is going to, to, and to cause a different kind of reaction from the world. If we have been transformed, if we are set apart from the world, then it should not surprise us if the world thinks we are strange. And it shouldn't surprise us if the world doesn't understand, and it shouldn't surprise us if much of the world wants to keep their distance. That's not unusual. That's natural. Because they don't know the Christ that we know. They don't have the Holy Spirit that we have. And so in verse 4, Peter describes how steadfast hope changes our expectations from the world because he describes the way the world responds when we don't participate in their activities. With respect to this, he says, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. And when he says, with respect to this, he's referring back to verse 3 and that list of sins. What the Gentiles want to do, the sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. As I mentioned last week, those words, especially taken together, describe unrestrained excess, unrestrained pursuit of lusts. And those words have an extreme connotation. That is, when we think of these things, we tend to think in terms of their most extreme manifestation. The, the, the crowds of people partying in the streets and in, in absolute drunkenness and absolute lawlessness 
and, and all sorts of chaos, right? That's what we tend to think of. But I mentioned last week that these things are also not just expressed in the extreme, but they are a description of the human heart. So while we may not be out in the crowd, in the streets, manifesting these things without any restraint, we are still oriented that way by nature, apart from Christ. The idea here is self-indulgence. And we can do that privately as much as we can publicly, can't we? And this self-indulgence can include anything having to do with sex, with food, with entertainment, with money, or any number of other things, including worship. Is it possible for worship to be self-indulgent? Yes, it is. And all this has to do with orienting one's life around our own personal appetites, our own lusts, and stopping at nothing until we fulfill them. So verse 3 highlights not just the committing of these sins, but also the want to do them, he says, when he describes what the Gentiles want to do. It's not just that they do them, it's that they long to do them. They want to do them. They hotly pursue these things. They want them. And there are enough of these lustful lists in Scripture, not just here, but in many other passages throughout the New Testament, to indicate that this is the normal nature and culture in this world throughout history. This is the natural life apart from Christ. Even as Apostle Paul says, and such were some of you. You look at those lists, and every single one of you can point to at least one that used to define you before you came to Christ. And if you can't, you're just not reading it properly. This is who we are. This is who mankind has been throughout all history starting at the fall. This is what is woven into our hearts by nature. And in fact, in the ancient world, I said worship, self-indulgent worship, they had temples and shrines devoted to these kinds of sins. They used these sins as an act of worship, of pagan idolatry. And so even worship was driven by self-indulgence. And I would say, in all frankness, the same thing is true today. We just don't call them shrines. We don't call them churches. We call them other things, and it's more subtle for us. But our self-indulgence tends to reveal our worship, doesn't it? The point here that Peter is making is that those things characterize the world around us, but they ought not characterize the people of God. The world around us doesn't see those things for, the, for the, the, the gross sin that they are because it's just normal. The Christian sees those things and knows they're much worse than the world thinks they are. And that ought not define our lives. True Christians neither participate in those things nor want to participate in those things. That means that we are to be generally innocent in our thinking regarding the vices of the world. 
because we have no interest in following after them. We have no interest in even looking like we follow after them. Well, you have to know what the world is like in order to minister to the world. You have to be well-versed. Okay, look, I, I get it. We need to have a general understanding of where the world is today so that we know how to communicate with the world, but we do not need to be experts in the world's sin. We don't even have to be current on the most popular entertainment. Sometimes it is better for the world to think us weird when we say, I don't know what you're talking about, than for us to know what they're talking about and then give the impression that we're not. Furthermore, it means that we are not wasting our time trying to invent sanitized versions of these things so that we might taste them just a little bit and yet not get in trouble. Listen, there is no virtue in being well-versed in the depravity of this world. We have been changed. That's the old way of life. We have been rescued from that. We have been set apart from that. Then that change ought to be clearly demonstrated in how we live. And because of that, because this is who Christians are, Peter says, he mentions two reactions that we can expect from this world, and they're not pleasant ones. The first one, he says, is misunderstanding. And the second one that he mentions is mistreatment. But he says first, with respect to this, with respect to that, that pagan behavior, they are surprised when you do not join in with them in the same flood of debauchery. They won't call it a flood of debauchery. Some of them might. But most of the time they won't. But that's what it is, and that's what we realize it to be. And when we don't participate, Peter says, they're surprised. That is their misunderstanding. And to be honest, misunderstanding is a huge understatement. Kind of like the word surprise in our minds, because surprise just means, oh, to us. But to them, in the language here, the, the original language, this word surprised has the idea of astonishment or shock, resentfulness, offense. They are baffled and they are not just a little bit upset that you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, nor do you have any desire to do so. You say, is this really the way it goes? Do they really think that sharply? Yes. Why do you think a Christian cake baker has been targeted repeatedly? It's not because he's the only guy in town. It's because they are absolutely astonished and offended and resentful that he will not participate with them. Who do you think you are? You judgmental hypocrite. You think you're better than we are? That's what they think. They might not say it to your face, but that's the sentiment, right? Living for God's will, living by godly character, is confusing and it is confronting to those who still live for fleshly passions. It offends them that we do not participate with them. And though they may not always show it, it makes them uncomfortable. 
they view us as judgmental. Sometimes it's because we've acted that way, but not always. They view us as judgmental. They view us as holier than thou, as fanatics, even hypocritical. But deep down, they know there's something true and right about it. Otherwise, they wouldn't respond so strongly. Eternity is still written on the hearts of all people. And that convicts them, and they can't bear it. They don't want to hear it. And so not only does living for the will of God lead to the world's misunderstanding of us, but it also leads to their mistreatment of us. Peter says, with respect to this, they malign you. You don't participate, they malign you. You know what that word malign means? It means to blaspheme. And we usually think of that in terms of things we might say about God, but to us, from man to man, from person to person, it has the idea of slander, defamation of character, speaking evil of someone, even spreading false accusations. In other words, if you won't join in the world's flood of debauchery, then the world will have to save face by snuffing you out. And to do that, they will say whatever they must, and they will do whatever they must to make you the bad guy. That's how it works. We've seen example of it after example after example. Not only do they view God's people as judgmental, but they view us as antagonizers and a threat to their way of life. Therefore, they must expel us. That's what's going on with the Christians that Peter is writing to. That has been the trend of society throughout human history. Don't be surprised if we face it ourselves. Be prepared. And Christian, stop trying to gain the approval of the world. Stop expecting that your faith is going to gain you an easy life and earthly respect. I've said this before, Christian, get it into your minds that if you stand firm for Christ, you are going to be made to look like an idiot to the world around you. Are you okay with that? Are you okay with looking like a fool to the world for Christ's sake? And I know that's easy to say, well, sure I am. But I'm telling you, there are churches and church movements throughout our country where that is their greatest fear. And I know it because they look no different than any of the other apostate churches and movements they look no different than the, the world. They, they are letting the world define their message. Why? Because we desperately want to be loved. We desperately want things to go well for us in this world. We desperately want to be accepted by the world. Christian, quit. Start expecting that by following the suffering Savior, you too may be made to suffer for righteousness' sake, whether it be by rejection from the world or defamation from the world or false accusations from the world or ridicule from the world or mockery or even death. Set your mind and your heart on Christ and do right, no matter what the world says or does. 
Now that brings us to verses 5 and 6, where we find a warning to the lost and an encouragement to the Christians. The third change is this. Here's where we find great encouragement, great comfort. Steadfast hope changes our future beyond this world. It changes our lifestyle in the world. It changes our expectations from the world. And it changes our future beyond this world. Once again, Peter is teaching us how to live here and now in the present world while lifting our eyes to our eternal hope and the next world. And he encourages God's people with two crucial points, the judgment of the lost and the life that God gives to his people. In verse 5, Peter speaks of the judgment of the lost. Look at it with me. But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. They are the ones who resent and mistreat God's people for not participating in their sinful values and behaviors. And Peter is assuring the suffering Christians that these people will give an account, not to them, not to Peter, but to God himself, the one who is ready to judge the living and the dead, almighty God. And they will answer not just for their own participation in those things, but for the way they have treated God's precious people. His people will be vindicated. The Apostle Paul so poignantly explains in 2 Thessalonians. Turn over there with me. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. Paul describes this, starting in verse 5. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God, for which you are suffering. Verse 6, since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. He says, that's not going to happen right here and right now. But Jesus is going to come again. And when he comes again, he will come with vengeance. Verse 9, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might when he comes on that day to be glorified in the saints. This is a word of encouragement to the saints. Your enemies will not win. But it is not in your hands to judge them. It is not in your hands to condemn them. You be faithful. God will judge. That's a word of encouragement to Christians. But it's a word of warning to the lost. Everyone will give an account to God for their life. And my friends, if you are not found in Christ Jesus... This judgment is where you are headed. Christ will come one day. Your life might be a life of ease now, but Christ will come one day. And when he comes, anyone who is not found under his blood will receive his vengeance, will receive his judgment. My friends, won't you turn from that? You can. Won't you turn from your sin and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior, 
Because this same God, who is the judge, is also merciful and gracious. And if you are alive today, there is time to repent and believe. There is time to cry out for salvation through Jesus Christ. We don't know what tomorrow brings. We don't know what this afternoon brings. The apostle says, now is the time. Today is the day of salvation. Won't you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ? And that brings us to verse 6, where we see finally a word of encouragement to suffering Christians. That our future beyond this world means life for God's people. Verse 6, he says, For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the Spirit the way God does. When he says that the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, he's not introducing some new theology. He's not introducing some mystical aspect of Christianity as if we light some candles and speak to ghosts. That's not what he's talking about. He's simply referring to those who in the past had heard the gospel, had received the gospel, and had passed away before Peter wrote 1 Peter. Those among you that you have known who have believed the gospel and then have already passed away, who have already died, some because of their faith, on account of their faith. That's who he's talking about. And he is writing to reassure people that that though they were, though those people were judged in the flesh the way people are, they were mistreated, they were unjustly judged, even to the point of death for their faith. Nevertheless, they live in the Spirit the way God does. Just like he described of Jesus, that when his body was laid in the ground dead, his Spirit was still alive unto God. Their eternal hope has been realized. This is why Christians, though we may weep because we miss somebody at their funeral, we also rejoice. Why? Because we know that our brothers and sisters in Christ, when they have passed away, their faith has become sight. And they are forever vindicated as they live in the presence of their Savior. So Peter's telling us that though God's people appear to be on the losing end in this world, they are eternally victorious in Christ. Victorious over sin. Victorious over death. Victorious over hell. Victorious over all the worst that this world can throw at us. That's why we sing no guilt in life, no fear in death. This is the power of Christ in me. No power of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck me from his hand, for I am his, and he is mine. Therefore, Paul says, we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Christians, live godly lives in this world. Expect realistic suffering from this world. 
and set your hopes and your joys on the next world. As we close, I want to do something a little bit different today, something I don't know that I've ever done before. I want to leave you with a particular scene in mind, and so I want to read to you an extended passage from a classic work. I've told you before, if you have not read Pilgrim's Progress, you need to go get it. And there are many versions of it that you can get that are at any level of reading, but I would encourage you, go read Pilgrim's Progress. John Bunyan's work is not just old. It is. It seems like it speaks to the ages. From what I understand, Pilgrim's Progress is the second most published book in history, next to the Bible, in terms of being a bestseller. The main character's name is Christian, and the book describes his journey from the city of destruction, that is his unsaved life, to the celestial city, which is eternity. It is an allegory that is meant to illustrate the Christian life and to give instruction on the challenges that Christians face in life and the helps that we receive from Scripture, from fellow Christians, and from the Lord himself. In the passage that I want to read to you, Christian and his new traveling companion, Faithful, have just entered a city called Vanity and a fair called Vanity Fair. And their experience vividly illustrates what we've been learning here in this passage. Here's what Bunyan writes. Then I saw in my dream that when Christian and Faithful got out of the wilderness, they immediately saw a town before them, and the name of that town was Vanity. In that town is promoted a fair called Vanity Fair. It is held all year long and is called Vanity Fair because of the name of the town, for the town is brighter than vanity, and also because all that is sold there and all who come there are worthless. Therefore, at this fair, they sell much merchandises, such merchandise as houses, land, trades, places, honors, promotions, titles, countries, kingdoms, lusts, and pleasures of all sorts, including such as harlots, wives, husbands, children, masters, servants, lives, blood, bodies, souls, silver, gold, pearls, precious stones, and much more. And along with all this, at this fair, there is a constant around-the-clock entertainment like juggling, cheats, games, plays, clowns, mimics, tricksters, and rogues, and other amusements of every kind. Here, visitors can also find free offers that include thefts, murders, adulteries, perjuries, and all of them are available in various shades of a blood-red color. Those who think they are going to avoid this city will still have to go out of the world. The prince of princes himself, when he was here, passed through this town on his way to his own country during a time when the fair was in full operation. I believe it was Beelzebub, the, the chief lord of this fair, who invited him to buy some of his vanities. Yes, he would have made him lord of this fair if only he would have shown him reverence and bowed down to him as he went through the town. When the pilgrims arrived, they were clothed with garments different from any available at that fair. When the people saw them, they stared at them and talked about what manner of people they might be. 
Some said they were fools. Others said they were lunatics. And some said that they were strange and unusual. Secondly, the great crowd wondered at their clothing. And in the same way, they were curious about their speech, for few could understand what they said. They naturally spoke the language of those who had sworn allegiance to the Lord Almighty. But those who ran the fair were men of this world. So from one end of the fair to the other, the people seemed barbarians to each other. Thirdly, and this astonished the merchants, was how these pilgrims placed such little value on the wares being sold. They didn't even care to browse. And if vendors called out to them to buy their wares, they put their fingers in their ears and cried, turn away my eyes from looking at vanity. And they looked upward, signifying that their trade and commerce was in heaven. One mocking merchant observed the strange behaviors of faithful and Christian and said to them, what will you buy? The pilgrims looked at them with serious expressions and said, we buy the truth. With this answer, the merchant and others took the opportunity to deride the men even more. Some mocked, some taunted, some spoke with reproach, and some called for others to strike them. It turned into a noticeable commotion and grew into a great disturbance to the point that everywhere you looked, the fair was in disorder. As a result, word quickly reached the governor of the fair. He came down right away and appointed deputies from some of his most trusted friends. He put these in charge of investigating what had happened and to examine the pilgrims about why they had nearly overturned the fair. So faithful and Christian were taken for further investigation. Those who presided over the proceedings asked them where they came from and where they were going and why they were wearing such unusual clothing. Faithful and Christian told them they were pilgrims and strangers in the world and that they were going to their own country, which was called the heavenly Jerusalem, and that they had done nothing to cause them, the, the men of the town or the merchants to mistreat them or to delay their journey. The only exception they could think of was when the merchant had asked them what they, want, what they would buy and they had responded that they would buy the truth. But those who were appointed to investigate the uproar did not believe them. They thought the pilgrims were nothing more than madmen mad and lunatics who came for the purpose of throwing the fair into confusion. Therefore, they took them and beat them, speared, uh, they spread them with dirt, and then put them into a cage as a spectacle in front of all the men of the fair. There, the two pilgrims lay caged for some time as objects of sport, malice, or revenge from the men of that place. All the while, the governor of the fair laughed at all that happened to them. And what Bunyan describes next is a trial. It's a sham of a trial. False witnesses are brought to make up accusations against them. And as a result, faithful is declared guilty by this false court. And he is executed and Christian is set free. And in resp response to faithful's tragic death, as Christian moves on, he calls out in testimony to faithful with these words. Well, faithful, you have faithfully professed unto your Lord with whom you will be blessed. When faithless ones with all their worthless delights are crying out, 
under their hellish plights. Sing, faithful, sing, and let your name survive, for though they have killed you, yet you are alive. It's the testimony of every Christian, no matter what he has to face from the world for the sake of Christ. Let's pray.